I'm Sammy J. Karam of Populist. Welcome to the podcast. As a quick disclaimer before we start, the views expressed by our guests do not necessarily represent my opinion or the opinion of Populist. Thank you for joining us. I am joined by Aaron Wren, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And the Manhattan Institute is a think tank here in New York City. And Aaron uh, has spent a lot of time doing work on cities in the Rust Belt and in other parts of the country. Uh, is it fair to describe you as one of the foremost experts on cities in the country, Aaron? <laughs> well, I always uh, say that an expert is something that somebody else calls you. It's uh, not something that you call yourself. So uh, I appreciate you, uh, you uh, thinking of those words when you, when you speak of me like that. Absolutely. So how should we uh, start thinking of this? Maybe one good place to start is to, uh, because you've written extensively about this, about uh, the difference between some of the coastal cities, such as New York, Los Angeles, that have been more dynamic than uh, other cities in the interior of the country. Do you want to start with this theme and uh, take it from there? Uh, yeah, I, I, yes. I, I have tended to focus on the cities of the Midwestern U United States because that's where I'm from uh, originally. And, it, you know, we like to talk about cities as if, you know, cities are all basically the same. And I guess at some level they are. But when you look at the Amer the landscape of urban America, there are just very different types of places that emerge. And I think people to some extent get it because they'll talk about sort of the heartland versus the coasts. Uh, I think that that is one dynamic. What we do see is these large established coastal giants, places like New York, Boston, Washington, uh, the greater Los Angeles, the San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, to some extent Portland, have been doing extremely well in terms of generating high-end economic activity. So they are, have huge tech start to huge tech startup businesses and tech industry. Um, they have finance industry. They've got government. They've got media. Many of these very high-end industries, and then also the professional services uh, and the, the entire ecosystem that goes with them are there. They're often um, contain uh, the, the few places in America that are really built is essentially uh, dense, walkable, transit-oriented cities. Now, L.A. is not that kind of city, uh, you know, and, and to some extent, you know, Washington, that is, isn't either, but certainly New York is, San Francisco is a, is a very dense city. So, th so these places are also very large. They're the largest, essentially, urban regions in the country, with the exception of Chicago being the only uh, interior city that think it's close once you look at the greater areas. So these places have been doing very well at sort of high-end economic activity. They haven't always been growing in population very, very fast. Um, in fact, the three largest metropolitan areas of the country all shrank last year, uh, but they... That would be New York. New York, LA, and Chicago. Okay. Um, but, you know, certainly in terms of like uh, high-end economic activity, they're doing very well. And you can say, well, the rest of the country is sort of being left behind. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. When you get into the interior of the country, it's not a monolith. 
there are quite a few cities. Wait, let, me, let me stop you right here yeah. while we're talking about the coastal cities. Yeah. So based on your uh, what you said in terms of the sectors that have done well and have contributed to the growth in those places and to the wealth creation in these places, is it uh, painting with a wide brush or with a too broad a brush to say that uh, this wealth creation it was due mainly to the fact that these cities were able to attract uh, sort of like intellectual uh, intellectual property type of work. In other words, people who are working in media or in uh, even in finance or in sectors that, that were uh, non-traditional in, in some ways. Or is that not a good uh, way to describe yeah. it? I believe it's uh, economist Ed Glazer who says the best predictor of per capita income in a city today is its share of people with college degrees in 1960 or 1940s. So cities that have historically had educated populations are doing pretty well in income. What you see in pretty much all of these cities is that they somehow managed to create, uh, often long ago, a niche for themselves that uh, enabled them to essentially become a dominant, entrenched player in a particular key industry. So Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States, and the uh, tremendous growth of the federal government and the regulatory apparatus there and in the defense complex with, you know, this, you know, all this war on terror stuff and those stuff, it's, it has really boosted them. So undoubtedly, government which is a huge and dominant player today in many respects, powers D.C. The Bay Area is heavily powered by the high-tech business. Seattle has also built a high-tech cluster, has other things, but has really grown mm -hmm. off that. L.A. has had entertainment and, and sort of the, the lifestyle that's there. Traditionally, they were a huge manufacturing. You know, that's kind of, you know, a lot of their manufacturing has declined. Still a huge manufacturing center, the port, but it's really... I think the entertainment complex, you know, music, film, television, et cetera, uh, that really drives a lot of that. Uh, Boston has both, is the center of kind of the elite higher education in America, also biotechnology, and then New York with the finance industry, with a sort of essentially the journalism and media mm -hmm. industry, also some of these cultural industries um, has done well. There are a lot of high-tech businesses coming in here, but really finance still to a great extent so pays the so bills. So these these have these these are things that were uh, typically established in the past, and and, and essentially they they became hot and built on them. They, you know, have, did, they have very deep roots going back right. decades. Right, it's not recent. Though. It's sort of like the auto industry in Detroit. We could take another example: is the auto industry in Detroit. The problem is that the auto industry has kind of fell on hard times. It didn't become one of these critical macro industries of the 21st century that drove wealth creation of the 21st century, it's not inconceivable that some of these other industries could, in fact, go, go the same way. But for now, they're doing very well because they're in, they're in these things that, that are doing well. And they're not the only ones. Houston in the energy sector has done very well. Um, but they've, they've managed to carve out a niche for themselves or multiple niches. All of these cities are not the same, right? You know, the Bay Area and Washington, D.C. are sure. totally different places, mm -hmm. but they've all found yeah. some high-end thing. And they, you know, they have enough wealth and amenities now that they are starting to just attract a lot of talented, especially young people, you know, who 
you know, are then attracting other kind of industries. So there's other things that are kind of glomming onto them. Uh, but I think they've all got kind of a home base industry that sort of powers the so place. So one way to think of it is their market share in some of these given industries is very dominant. You know, if you think of right. uh, tech, you know, clearly the Bay Area, as you said. Right. But, you know, which makes me think of the following question. Can a city such uh, one of these large cities, let's talk about New York, uh, what are the chances that New York, because New York is trying very hard to do it, that it could become uh, a hub for also also for technology, you know, with, with with all the efforts and all the money that's being poured and the Cornell campus and other colleges. Uh, the, the the question is, uh, if you've been uh, dominant in some of these sectors, do you have a chance to add another major sector to your city? Right. Well, what I would say is. Uh, New York is doing very well in tech today. Um, a lot of the Silicon Valley companies are big employers here now. When I think if you're, I think of like a secondary city who's trying to become big in tech, you can't just say, I want to be big in tech. It's like, what kind of tech can be good there? And what you often find is that the particular kind of technology or startup industry that takes root in a place is deeply tied to the existing industries of the place. So um, you can think of New York, and what do you think of New York? You think of finance, so New York is kind of a fintech hub in some ways. They're you know not the only one, but there aren't a lot of cities in America with fintech startups. There's also a huge property technology business. The prop tech world is basically centered on New York in a lot of ways. And many of the innovations in real estate and technology, um, WeWork, uh, which we can all debate whether that's a, a real company or what's going on with a rework, uh, but it's an example of, it's not per se a technology company. They like to, to sell themselves as that, but it's sort of innovative ways of packaging real estate, right? Real sure, estate is yeah. one of the key issues. So you start thinking about that. You could think about like median lifestyle, a, a BuzzFeed type of startup mm -hmm. or something like an Etsy or guilt group, or whatever that's called now. Um, there were a number of these sort of media, lifestyle, um, branding-driven, marketing-driven companies, real estate companies, fintech companies. Uh, so there's a lot of different sub-ecosystems within tech that New York is very, very strong in. If you go to a city like Chicago, um, you see uh, a lot of you know, kind of innovation and kind of B2B services technology because that's kind of always been their, one of their claims to fame or uh, or, or more food-related uh, startups, you know, food and consumer goods-based startups. And in D.C., you may see some, uh, in Washington, D.C., you may see some uh, tech uh, efforts that are geared to assisting government organizations or, or, or such, you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, I... I Obviously, the, the kind of security and defense sure, industries yeah. have been huge there. There's a tremendous amount of technology activity in the Washington area because of that. You know, again, a lot of defense and, and security related, mm -hmm. and also a, a humongous um, kind of medical complex around Baltimore. A lot of things around Baltimore, and that. So there's a lot of medical biotech stuff in that area as well. If if you're sort of related to serving the government. The federal government, you are probably there. In fact, the rules around federal contracting have become um, so onerous 
in kind of a, a globalized world that a lot of the consultancies um, have essentially split them either split themselves in two or created separate subsidiaries uh, or spinoffs that exclusively serve the federal government because there's all these requirements around everybody who works on the project has to be a U.S. citizen or has to have like a you know green card. So you can't be using offshore labor and different things like that. Sure. All of the servers have to be hosted in the United States. So in order to do compliance from the finance, financial tracking and all of that, you essentially need an entire unit just to serve the federal government. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, a bespoke operation in and of itself just to, just to service that. Right. Okay. Uh, very interesting. Let's talk about other cities now. And would you separate them in different groups? Would you say there are some, obviously some are more successful than others, uh, but they're all kind of uh, not in that same mold as, as the big coastal centers that we just talked about. So how would you, how would you separate, for example, in Austin and in Nashville from others that maybe are yeah. doing less well? It, well, definitely there are a lot of interior cities in the south and west that are doing uh, very well. Dallas, Austin, Nashville, Charlotte, Denver, Salt Lake City. Uh, there are a lot of places that are doing extremely well. They're often not doing it on the same model as the coastal cities. They're very auto-based. They're very sprawl-based. They don't have the central business district of a Manhattan or a, or a Boston or a San Francisco. Um, but nevertheless, they're they're very prosperous. They're growing. They're often much more affordable, although housing prices are going up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and their population is often growing rapidly because they've been willing to build new housing to accommodate new people, something that essentially has all but been prohibited in California and places like that. And so they're doing very well. And I think one of the things that you see is, I think there's kind of basically three tiers of cities there. There's sort of these like, gazelles, if you want to call them that, are these, you know, uh, boom towns. Think of them as boom towns uh, that are doing very well. Then there's sort of a, a group that are kind of doing pretty well, but not spectacularly. Many of these are in the in the old uh, upper Midwest, in the Midwest, in the Northeast. So we think about Minneapolis, St. Paul, Columbus, Ohio, um, Pittsburgh, places like that. They're doing pretty well, getting some good breasts, but not necessarily breakout success. And then you do have a large number of cities, mostly smaller cities that were branch plant manufacturing towns. Um, not all branch plant, but a lot of them were, we didn't have a lot of headquarters or their companies were bought up that are really struggling. Flint, Michigan, Youngstown. And one of the things that you see is um, basically, much as we discussed with these coastal giants, if you have powerful assets to build around, you are doing pretty well. So a lot of the state capitals are doing well. Um, often, like a Columbus, Ohio, it's the state capital. Mm-hmm. The state's flagship public university, Ohio State, is there, um, and they've got you know quite a few major corporations based there. Uh, it's got a very good lifestyle to live there. It's affordable. So what's happening is in that place within Ohio, a lot of people from the rest of the state have been centralizing into Columbus. Now, they're not necessarily drawing from the rest of the country that, that strongly, but they've sort of become the, the place to go 
on a smaller scale within, within their state. And so if you are a state capital, if you're a college town like a Champaign-Urbana or a Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. or Iowa City, if you had some unique, like Rochester, Minnesota with the Mayo Clinic, if you've got something going on, then you're generally doing okay. Uh, but if you don't, especially if you're smaller, if you're less than a million in population, say, in your region, then you're really kind of behind the eight ball in a lot of ways. And, I mean, there's probably close to 50, I would say, small and medium-sized metropolitan areas in the U.S. that are really, really, really struggling. And there's not necessarily an obvious turnaround point for them because they tend to have very poorly educated populations relative to the national average in terms of college degrees. They don't have a lot of high-end employers. They don't have top university programs. They don't have big foundations. They don't have big airports. You go on down the line, what is every asset you would want to have have in a city? Uh, it, uh, it, you know, they, they don't have hardly and any the, of them. The, hardly the, any the of chances them. of changing any of these things is it's, it's a slow-moving process. Right. It isn't as if you can... Uh, you can improve education, but it takes a long time. You can try right. to attract industries or right. corporations, but then you're competing with dozens of other cities. So there is no uh, easy, easy solution for right. any of them. For a lot of them, there is really not an obvious an And are obvious they losing thing. population at the same time? They tend to have lost, already have lost a substantial population, their population loss is off is, is sort of been slowing in some cases because there are just fewer people to leave. Right. For for one thing, and those who and are the, the age average, or the age median. Yeah, it's, it's I'm an older. It's higher, becoming an right? old. It's becoming an, an older population. <clears throat> now, not every city that is shrinking and looks bad from kind of a headline perspective is doomed. Um, I think there are especially some of the bigger cities. If you look at Cleveland. And you say, oh, my gosh, Cleveland is shrinking. Uh, you know, all the numbers look terrible. But, in fact, Cleveland um, has the Cleveland Clinic, one of the world's most elite medical facilities, 50,000 employees. They've got elite cultural institutions. It's a major city. It's, you know, it's on the on a great mm-hmm. lake. It's got an airport. So that goes back to right. the assets you yeah, were just so talking got, about. They've got some assets. Right. And what you see with some of these places, there's a handful of places Pittsburgh is, a, is the paradigmatic example. Pittsburgh is shrinking, even though the city of Pittsburgh is kind of booming because of tech companies showing up to be close to Carnegie Mellon University, right. which is the top computer science program in the world. They're a leader in robotics and machine learning and other things. And so, yeah, Google and all you know, these driverless car people, mm-hmm. they're all setting up shop there. Uh, the startups like Duolingo, et cetera. They've also got a good medical center, not quite Cleveland Clinic size, but like University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is very big destination medicine. But, of course, the population is still shrinking, and in part that's because they have one of the oldest populations. Right. It's, it's one of the rare places where more people are dying than being born. Hmm. And so what you're seeing is the numbers don't look great, but what's happening is a restructuring behind the scenes. I would argue something similar is happening in Cleveland on a much more nascent scale. Some of these places are going to successfully restructure. Some of them are maybe not going to successfully That's restructure. But I think there's some of these places are restructuring, but they tend to be the large cities, the Pittsburghs, the Clevelands, mm-hmm. the Chicagos, 
Um, but once you get into these smaller places, um, they're going to be much, much more difficult to essentially make fundamental change because, um, you, you know, we, we don't have this like buoyant in, environment that we had in, say, the mid-century era when it's sort of lifting this mass middle class and, the, and all the boats are rising. We essentially have, a, have an economy that's become concentrated at the high end in terms of growth, high end and low end growth. The majority of like, something like 192 metropolitan areas where the share of middle class populations is shrinking. I don't remember the exact state, mm -hmm. a stat on that. It was from Pew. I think did that study it was pretty astonishing. So, you know, kind of being in the middle has not been a good place right. to be. I mean, when yeah. you look at it against the backdrop of the uh, big picture demographics for, for the entire country. Yeah. Which, uh, as you know, the population growth in the United States is, is going down. Yeah. You know, we, we used to be at uh, over 1% annual growth. Now we're less than 1% annual growth, and we're that, that rate is fading down to uh, 20 years from now, it'll be less than 0.5% uh, population growth. Right. And that's, by the way, assuming that we continue uh, accepting immigrants at the same rate as, as we have, which, which is not a given nowadays. Um, so when you look at this backdrop, of let's call it almost flat population or, or very modest growth while it's at the same time aging. Yes. And uh, as you just described, more interest uh, in young people moving to the, to the coastal uh, cities or to the, as you described, the gazelles mm -hmm. or even to the Midwestern cities that are doing okay. What, what does that, where does that leave the other, you know, the, the laggards who are already struggling, are we in, a, in an extreme scenario looking at potentially a few city, cities that are emptied out 20 years from now? Yeah, it, it's really, uh, you know, there's nothing that says cities last forever. Rome at its imperial peak had something like a million people, maybe, depending on estimates, mm -hmm. you know. A few hundred years later, and it, it got to be like 35,000 people. I mean, Rome was essentially abandoned during parts of the Middle Ages. And, and so, yeah, cities can go, can go away. We used to have ghost towns in America. We haven't had a ghost town. We, in we have had that in the past. You know, these, these, but they were mostly or like in the, mining. In the Old West. Oh, the Old yeah, West okay. and the like. And today we don't really have ghost towns in the sense that most of our cities today are fairly large. and. Um, you know, there, there are essentially programs in place now that create a uh, – there's a social safety net in our country now that we don't just say move or starve. I happen to think that's a good thing. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of mechanisms that keep people, keep people in place. There, these places are perhaps going to shrink and age for a very long time. I don't know that we're going to see true ghost towns, but there are a lot of places that are essentially – kind of on a, uh, maybe a downward trajectory, you, you which is something, something we're not used to in America. Sure. And, and no, there's this being dealt with all over the world. It's being dealt with in East Germany, Eastern Germany, part of the Eastern Bloc, and some of these industrial towns in, in Europe. You know, there's these issues in, 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 this, in the former Soviet Union with these monotowns, as, as they called them, you know, that were set up for, like, for specific purposes. Uh, Japan is essentially—Japan mm -hmm. does have ghost towns. 
there are there are cities in Japan that I believe have been essentially completely abandoned or have a handful of elderly residents left. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's affecting a lot of places around the world, and you know we're dealing with it uh, as as well. And you know the economics of cities don't work well uh, in kind of a decline scenario. We we sort of have a situation with if we think back to a pre capitalistic essentially pre capitalistic economy. Um, when you had either some type of you know a feudal economy or predominantly an agricultural based economy, we can think of a you know kind of a homestead farm based economy. We went hundreds of years you know with essentially steady state economies where there wasn't a lot of growth, there wasn't necessarily a lot of change. But these 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 societies could survive essentially being stagnant for very long periods of time. But once we transition to an industrial mode of operation, we essentially, our societies don't function in a stagnant to decline scenario. We, we don't handle stag, even stagnation well, much less decline. Well, that's certainly true for the financial aspect yeah. of the economy. So. Right. Or, or you know, it's become, it's become a huge issue. So we end up with all these situations where we haven't figured a way to... Uh, unlike with the business going bust, right? There's no... <laughs> Uh, there, there's no scenario. So, so our, so there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot right. of challenges because there's a lot of fixed costs associated with the city. Even if a city, think about a city of say 50,000 people. If you got rid, let's say you convinced everybody to move, we'll pay everybody to move away, and they all say yes. Well, you still have a city full of homes and buildings. You can't just leave it sit there and like, uh, you'd have to demolish it. You'd have to remediate it. You know all the soils and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, the decommissioning cost of just brownfields and all these buildings, that's why all these, these cities are sitting on, many of them, tens of thousands of vacant homes that they can't even demolish. They, they know that these homes are there, but there's all these legal title issues, environmental issues, financing issues. It's expensive just to demolish a house. Sure. And you, so that, we, that becomes a, a you, huge problem. You mentioned Detroit earlier. The, the population there did shrink, correct, significantly? No, it's fallen by, you know, over 60%. It's, it's And it's, is it, uh, I know there's a bit of a recovery now. Have you, uh, what, what do you think the prospects are for Detroit? And it may never recapture its former glory, but what, what kind of path is it on in, in the present? Well, Detroit is a very interesting case because Detroit, you, you got to talk about two different things. There's Detroit, the city of Detroit, which has lost enormous population. And there's the Detroit region. The Detroit region is positioned to do okay, I think. It's still the global center, and it's certainly the North American center of automobile industry. Every major German, Japanese, Korean auto parts supplier, with the exception of one or two, has their North American headquarters in Detroit. You know, there's still a lot of tremendous engineering knowledge there. There's a number of Fortune 500 companies there. There's a major hub airport there. You can fly nonstop to Europe, to Asia. It's the number one trade gateway to Canada. Um, you know, the University of Michigan, which is one of the best public universities in America, maybe the best public university, arguably, certainly in the top two or three, um, is that is in that kind of area. Uh, it's the kind of center of uh, largest Arab American population in the country is there. You know, they're they're not, a, I'd say, a huge immigrant magnet, but they've got more than, than other places in the Midwest, a lot of them. So uh, there's reasons to think that Detroit 
you know, as a region is going to do fairly well. You know, the city essentially underwent a process of almost total white abandonment um, and became became one of the most racially polarized mm -hmm. areas in the, in the country. And so uh, th there has been a little bit of essentially a, a, a resurgence of the downtown. You often see that pretty much everywhere in America. A lot of apartments and young people moving into the very center of the city, maybe within, say, a, a two to three mile radius of downtown. But much of the rest of the city is not necessarily seeing a lot of development. But wh where I'm optimistic is that the city has tried to fundamentally address finances, services, governance. Detroit was incredibly corrupt. Corruption seems to have dramatically declined there. There's still a lot of issues in the, in the bureaucracy around you know, just inefficiencies, but this sort of rampant corruption, you know, one of their mayors, his former mayors is, you know, serving a lengthy prison term for corruption, seems to have been dealt with. You know, they went bankrupt and they cleaned up a lot of their legacy liabilities. They restructured the convention center and the water utility to create more regionalization. They did things like create a lighting utility to... You know, their street half their street lights didn't work, so they created a lighting, a special lighting utility to replace all the street lights in the city. Now they've had some problems that some it of those lights they aren't laughing, but yeah. they're trying to rebuild their public yeah. services. They're tr they're trying to address some of the issues. I say in these places, you really have to look at your governance. You have to have like cl you know, clean, effective public governance. I mean, I just think if you just focus on doing the basics, you know, I think that that. Um, that that that's the, that's really what you need to do when, when you're in the scenario, and I think they've done that on a number of fronts and have, have made a lot of improvements. Um, I don't know that the city is going to become a boom town, and, and much of it it's a pretty you know large geographically city, uh, but hopefully that they're able to essentially draw a line under some of the problems and, and you know essentially start restoring public services slowly, restoring public services. How can you improve your public transit? How can you start providing better basic services to the city, and and uh, hopefully that you know provides a a a, uh, a quality of life that we would consider appropriate even for the the lower income residents that are that are still there even though they may not see the greatest uh, the greatest uptick uh, in economic growth for example. You you mentioned the immigrant population in Detroit. Uh, this would be a good time to discuss what. Uh, immigrants can do for a place. Um, where are they going predominantly? I think I already know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. but, um, both uh, foreign immigration and internal migration. Can you talk a little bit about the impact it has on the on a city, uh, not just culturally, but also in, if, if you can, in terms of its uh, business, uh, it, it's bus not just its, its art culture or its food culture, but also its business culture, its, uh, you know, what it does to social capital and so, so forth. Right. So, um, what I would say, there's, there's kind of two principles, uh, and this is maybe their opposite principles, uh, that... Uh, are at work in a place. One is you might think of the dynamic of the change principle. The other one is essentially the the rootedness or or the kind of um, preservationist uh, uh, um, impulse. And you want to have both of those in some sort of balance. If you become too dynamic, you end up like there. For example, there's been a lot of complaints uh, about in Singapore 
that Singapore has become essentially just a transient, completely transient population. They call it the Hotel Singapore. Mm. Uh, you know, or some of these southern boom towns like Austin, Texas. So many people are moving there. People say, well, like Austin is losing its soul. All the things that, that made Austin desirable are being destroyed by people coming in. There's, there's even right. a slogan for it, right? Right. right. Keep Austin keep, weird. Keep Austin weird. And then... On the flip side, you end up with these these other cities that don't have they're too stasis. There's too much stasis. There's not enough dynamism. There's not enough new blood, and as a result, they become very calcified and unable to respond to change. Um, they become, as as one person called them, a, a set of Cleveland. It's a cul-de-sac of globalization. So the problem with Cleveland is not too much globalization. It's too little. Globalization bypassed Cleveland. And that's the problem. And so I think newcomers to some of these places in the Midwest would be beneficial in that they need new blood. They become very sort of civically inbred in a sense. Um, you go to some of these places uh, like a Cincinnati or a St. Louis, and the question they ask when they meet you is, where did you go to high school? And uh you know, uh, because they all come from right. a similar background, yeah, and well, that's it, that's the main differentiator. Yeah, that that the fact that where you went to high school is a social marker places you in a community. You know, you go to Washington D.C. Nobody cares where you went to high school. It's like a, a friend of mine says there. Are you, like, you may hear that it's a high school at the other side of the right. of the earth, right? Right. And in some of these other places, they ask where you're from. You come to New York, where are you from? Because it's just assumed you're not from right. it. So, so there's some of that. So I think that um, some of these places uh, in the Midwest, they, they, they have very, very, very high percentages of, of native-born residents. Native-born not just in the sense of domestic, but to the United States, but within the very place itself. And they need, they need more outsiders to come in because without outs outsiders are the natural constituency of the new. And outsiders essentially also carry... Informa they carry information with them, and they bring relationships with them, and uh, and and so you you can see to some extent in a global world when you need to have essentially global perspective and global um, connectivity to other markets, having people who are from those places be there is essentially a connection point. It is a type of Network. Just is as it, trade, there's trade. You can think of trade networks, global trade networks, global information networks, global financial networks. There's also global human capital networks. But is it fair to say that you need to almost feel like there's a crisis in order to have this change in the mindset that people will become more mm -hmm. accepting and more welcoming, or even more inviting to outsiders? Because there's kind of a built-in, almost natural. Uh, fallback position in a lot of places where it's nice to have the community be very cohesive and everyone knows each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we all like that, mm -hmm. uh, even though, uh, you know, I've, I've come from a different place mm -hmm. when I'm, whenever I go in a place, even, even as someone observing it, mm -hmm. I enjoy seeing people who, who have this sense of community. Um, but uh, so there's kind of the default mode is to maybe prefer the other one. And you almost need a crisis or the, the, the urge to do something to gravitate in your mindset towards the other thing. Is that is that a fair point? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's some of that. I think some of these places are deeply uncomfortable with kind of like demographic change. 
because because they're so um um you know because they've just been so insulated for, <laughs> so, for so long so, for so it's long, long right. that that's been there um now having said that i am not optimistic that immigration is really solution for these uh uh, these Midwest cities, there are 44 million foreign-born people in the United States. Very few of them chose to live in these Midwest cities. So if you think about, um, let's just say we doubled or tripled that, which would be, an, I mean, imagine if we went to 88, you know, 88 million foreign-born in America, unless somehow these Midwestern places increased their market share, wouldn't make a difference. Even if you doubled the number of immigrants right. in Cleveland, and it's what would still, they do there? It's I mean, still they not tend very much. to go where the jobs are. So, where, right. what would they do in those cities? Yeah, if- and, and I think um, th- the way that immigration has been um, handled in the U.S. and the U.K. in particular has, you know, I would argue, destabilized the politics of the country. And so, I do think that while, while in a sense, um, you know, I'm all. I've always been, you know, more is better kind of guy. You know, when it comes to immigration, I didn't even have to recognize that the level, the immigration is that has been done has essentially blown blown up the politics right. of the countries. Canada and Australia took very different approaches. Uh, you know, in particular, Canada. You know, aggressively, uh, they they did two things. They they said we're going to curate our immigrants to select for people that we think are going to be an asset to Canada, whether that be they have skills or they have, you know, French language or whatever. And they essentially, you know, enforce, essentially enforce the borders. You know, Australia sort of does the same thing. And so actually Australia and Canada have far higher levels of foreign-born population than the U.S. and U.K., but the U.S. and the U.K. are the ones that have been politically um Kind of upset, and, and what, so what I what I what I think is that the, the thing that has really destabilized those politics is this idea that it's a sort of an out of control situation. You know, with the UK in particular, legally they're unable to prevent any EU migrant who wants to come there from resettling right. there, and so they so have it's the not skill based. It's not. It's just like it's it, free free right of labor, right. and so that was one of the drivers of Brexit. Is sure. this idea that you know. Well, everybody wants to come to the UK, to London, basically, and we can't get into London uh, because you know all the housing is now occupied by people who were like from Poland or right. from wherever. And so I think there's that, and there's also this the, in the U.S. that there's always there's been this very very unlike in Canada or Australia, there's been or there's this large illegal population that came here, just crossed the southern border, and essentially, it's essentially been de facto tolerated. You know, people is like, look, we're gonna we're just gonna let this happen. There's really been no no effort. And so I think that this I think that we do have to look at like how it's been handled in the US and UK versus how it was handled in Australia and Canada. Um and look at what lessons could be learned about how you if you want to structure a society where immigration is not gonna destabilize the politics. Right. I think you can add uh, you can add Switzerland to that list yeah. of Australia and Canada where yeah. the the percent of the foreign-born in Switzerland is very high. I forget exactly what it is, but yeah. not far from 30%, I no, believe. No, it's interesting, yeah. And, uh, and as you uh, pointed out about Canada and Australia, for Switzerland also it was, uh, you know, there were some parameters <laughs> uh, depending on skill and so forth. 
um, professional. It, it's attracted a lot of professionals, and that's why uh, it's it's so high as a percent of the total population. Uh, so that's very interesting. I mean, um, yeah, we having almost, said that, when we you almost look- do the dumbest. I mean, it's like we have the people who come here; they get their master's degree in electrical engineering, right, from the University of Illinois, and then we tell them we have to have to go back. Right? You get like an H one B visa that lets you stay here for like a couple years and work, but then you're spending the whole time trying to figure out how to get a green card. Right. It's like the people who have the most education and talent that we would want, we actually treat the worst. <laughs> You know, in some respects, it's like a totally backwards. Yeah, it policy. seems the number of H one B visas are uh, are consumed is is consumed uh, long before the calendar year is over for that allocation, yeah. right? Right. Is it is it uh, spoken for by yeah, yeah. six months instead right. of the whole year or something like that? Yeah, so. and you know, and I, and I worked with a lot of these H one B people in, in the consulting business, and many of them, I mean, all the ones I worked with, except one person was here because they wanted to move here and they were hoping to get a stay in the United States, but they were in this limbo state. Right. Uh, very unfair, kind of very unfair to them. Some of them are married and like their families are under a lot of stress. And so I, you know, I think. And, and not utilizing their, their yeah, education yeah. or their skill in an optimal right. and fashion. It, and yeah. it restricts labor mobility with, you know, with it. So it's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues like, there's always been this idea that why don't we just staple a green card to like your diploma? Mm-hmm. And, I w- and I wouldn't necessarily do that for everybody, but I also think about like, you know, people that we think if it's worthwhile for, if you're so skilled that we want you here for three years, you know, why would we want you on like a three year, just a three year only contract? Why wouldn't we say, so I think there's like, I think there's like a lot of things that need to be right. There's a lot of aspects of our immigration system that are kind of scams, I mean, the United States is kind of becoming a scam country in way too many ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to eliminate scams and have like a system that's designed and all of that. But having said that, I think that the issue for the Midwest, for me, is they have to become places that immigrants want to actually move to. It's sort of like they think immigrants are going to save them because it's like, well, nobody who was born in this country wants to come here. Maybe th- th- this is... They don't say this, but this is sort of how they act. It's like people who were born in this country uh, don't want to come here because they know that we're not a very nice place. But maybe these people from other countries are so, are, so, are so dumb, they don't know. <laughs> this put, when, in fact, they're just as smart as everybody else. You know, They smell economic, immigrants smell or, or economic they, opportunity. Or maybe they don't have the, the choice that, right. that, in, that a U.S.-born citizen has. Right. And, and yeah, well, so I, I think there's a sense of, it would be great for a lot of these Midwest cities to have more immigrants, but they have to become more attractive to immigrants in, in order to get them. It's not that, you know, there's too few immigrants to go around. It's that the immigrants want to be in the places like Houston or Dallas or Washington, D.C. or New York where there's economic opportunity and, you know, where there may be established communities and this and that. Right. But I think ultimately you have to have uh, – you have to have an environment that's going to be attractive to them because they're going to they're they're just as good at figuring out their own their own best interests of their family as we are. You know what I mean? So it's sure, like, definitely. Uh, that's that's why I feel like you can't you can't just assume that like that's going to save you if you're not if you're asking if there's no immigrants in your community why and what do you need to change to make that happen? Mm-hmm. Okay, and one other topic that I wanted to discuss with you is the transit situation. 
yeah. which I know you've done a lot of work on. And um, where are we today? How would you describe what cities are doing? You know, you can uh, slice it any way you want, but it seems if I'm uh, reading correctly that the age of the massive projects, the big subway networks, you know, the, the big, the big, even high speed networks, people are kind of disillusioned with that. And we're looking for lower cost solutions that are more efficient and will work better. Is that, a, is that, am I, am I reading this correctly or is there something uh, else? Well, I, I don't know if I'd phrase it quite that way. What I would say is there are a limited number of cities in America that it's mostly these coastal cities plus Chicago that historically had uh, extensive transit systems that they did not abandon for the most part. So Boston subway, Philadelphia subway, New York subway, essentially the surface streetcar lines in San Francisco these these cities had transit and they had environments that supported transit. And then you had a, a couple places like Washington when it built its metro system that were able to build effective transit systems. So you essentially have a handful of places with significant transit ridership uh, where essentially transit is integrated into the life of the city um, and isn't just it's it's not just a a social service for the poor essentially. Then you've got most of the rest of the country, the vast majority of the United States. You have the cities that were built almost entirely during the automobile era. They're very sprawly. They don't have these huge downtown employment centers like you know Manhattan. And as a result, they've traditionally had extremely low transit ridership. Some of them have tried building essentially very expensive rail transit systems. And they've been very ineffective. Um, For example, who? who uh, Los Angeles has spent north of ten billion building a rail system. They they carry fewer transit passengers in L.A. today than they did in the 1980s. Even the you know so ridership is declining significantly in many of these cities. Um, Dallas built the largest rate light rail network in the country. You know and you know people ride it, but not it's sort of a drop in the bucket compared to region and again billions of dollars have because been spent the, the on differential these versus taking the car is not attractive enough yeah i mean where where if you if you look at manhattan you know if you're living let's say in westchester in a near suburb taking the car at rush hour is is, is not right. really an option right so you you have you have to take the train and then the subway Whereas in some of these places, the, the difference in time or in comfort or in convenience is not, is not high enough to, right. to give up the car. Yeah. Right. And so it, it just really, and it, it just hasn't worked. So I do think that a lot of places now are looking at more, you know, looking at bus-based solutions. They're, they're looking for things that don't cost as much money. Rail is still very popular in a segment of the population. Um, where I think there's really been a, an increasing. Well, what do you mean by that? That it's popular with this? You mean well, conceptually or for yeah? The I mean, usage? like there, there's there's definitely this this urban transit advocate crowd that thinks if it's not a rail car, well, it when you say count. popular, you're not talking about users. You're talking about right, I'm the, talking the, about the, sort of a, you know planning the, the planning the, community, the planning okay. community, not all planners, but like a lot of the planners and a lot of real estate interests. 
the real estate interests hope that if you build a, a, a rail line, a light rail line past their property, it's go up in value. You know, uh, where I think there's been a lot of critique of some of these mega projects is in the big cities like New York, where it's become increasingly apparent in the past, you know, five to 10 years that the cost of to build a subway line in the United States is grossly uh, out of line with the rest of the world. The New York Times wrote, wrote, wrote an article a couple of years ago, or maybe it was a year or so ago, called The Most Expensive Mile of Subway on Earth. I'm, I'm going to guess is this uh, Second Avenue? The Second subway? Avenue subway. Yeah. You know, and so we're, we're paying twice as much per per kilometer to build a subway as London. But by the way, they didn't skimp because yeah. when you look at the stations themselves, right. they're, they're gorgeous, right? right? They're, they're, so they spend the money even on the stations. Not, so I, I don't know if it costs so much because of the, uh, the digging of the tunnels or was it because... The stations well, it's, and it's not 100% clear what, what the route... Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't appear to be just one thing that's driving up the cost. It appears to be a large collection of things. But anyhow, we have proven very, very ineffective at... And part uh, of this is... Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. But part of this is administrative, I'm sure, right? Yeah, every, every, every aspect right. of it. And so we just have a system that is... You know, when you're spending five times as much as Paris... You know, to build something, we're not talking about costing more than developing world countries, or it's not like, oh, you know, China can do things cheaply because they don't have any labor laws and the government just does what they want. Well, Paris has unions, <laughs> very, very tough ones. Paris has, you know, Roman era ruins. Yeah, sure. They've got all this, they, they have old buildings, they have narrow streets. So you start looking at, like, okay, wait a minute, why is this, why is it everything so difficult here? Um, there's a tremendous parochialism in America that we think that we must have the, and you see this especially even within America in New York. People in New York assume that since, well, we're in New York, we must have the absolute best of everything. Everything here must be the best. And in fact, like, you know, some of the things that, you know, New Yorkers are like, think are famous, like, you know, the diners of Manhattan, there's, you know, diners in Manhattan are terrible. Most of the rest of the country has better diners. Than, than than New York, and so it's like, oh, we, we don't like to learn from other we don't like to learn from other countries. I mean, if we wanted to like study what they did in in Spain, which has very very low cost, or in in in, in you know, or looking what's going on in France, we might have to get somebody that actually knows how to speak some of those languages. Right. You know, it's like we know. So there's there's certainly a not invented here right uh, mentality, and then we do have a lot of laws. For example, we have these Buy America laws. That say any federally funded project has to can can only buy essentially materials from that are made in America. So we're, so then, we we don't we really don't have people manufacturing train cars here. So what do we have to do? We have to have a company from overseas create a special factory in the United States to do final assembly on their product to qualify for Buy America. So there's all these like rules that are just layers running that at the cost. So when the Second Avenue subway was built, or any similar project that you can think of around the country, uh, no one. This is a question, not a statement. No one had the idea or. Uh, the kind of um, the need or the requirement to benchmark versus another city. Let's say you mentioned Paris. No one ever went there and said, "How do you guys do it?" And why are you doing it I so know. efficiently? Not as far as I know. 
I mean, this, uh, this, this brings up an important point, which is how do, we, how, how do the big cities learn from each other, not just within the United States, but for a lot of these issues, we may have something to learn from other places. Yeah. But you're saying the mindset is not. Yeah, I think this. I think America that. has just always had a very, um, you know, a kind of a very. We're we, the did, best we just, at we doing just assume we're the best. We're on top. What do we have to learn from anybody else? They should be learning from us. Right. And uh, and there's certain certainly areas where other people should be learning from us, and we are the best. Well, there are actually areas where we're not the best. We actually ought to go learn from what other people are the doing. Trading of ideas also right. is part of the globalization improvement. Right. You know, I think we've had one of the most open societies in terms of welcoming new people coming here. Uh, but we have not necessarily been found new ideas or different ways of doing things, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, to be to be the same. I do think there's something, um, you know, some research has kind of been done on cost. And it does seem like a lot of the Anglosphere countries have um, have higher costs. Uh, some of the highest costs, you know, London has a, has a high cost city as well. And there probably is something uh, related to the kind of the legal traditions of these common law jurisdictions, these former uh, mm -hmm. British colonies that has something to do with, with some of this cost. It's, it's a little hard. It's a little hard to pick it all apart. Well, the cost uh, of real estate, if, if you, yeah. you want to talk just about that is uh, in a lot of these places driven by the influx of foreign, yeah. foreign investors. Yeah many of whom don't live there but have a right. have a pita there often just as an investment as a matter of fact but yeah uh, before i let you go i'd like to talk to you about high speed rail yeah so is anything going on in high speed rail other than the line that's being built in california which by the way every time i look seems to be shorter <laughs> i mean it used to be san francisco to los angeles if i recall yeah now it's I forget the names of the cities, but it's significantly right. shorter. And by the way, also significantly more expensive than what the initial line was, even though the initial line was for the entire distance. Yeah, well, I think, yeah. So what's the future of that line and other <laughs> similar projects? Right, well, it, yeah, it's a good question, man. Like, I haven't followed that in tremendous detail, but it's clearly been a debacle. And... um they uh, it's it's probably some similarities to why subway costs are so high and uh you know obviously the first time you try to do something it would be difficult we haven't had it had a true kind of high speed rail line here um so, so you're, you're being kind here you're saying uh, it's a learning curve yeah problem, well right? i don't know about <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that i mean let's let's be honest i mean like it, it, they they lied about the costs they knew it was going to be more expensive than they thought than they said but it's like a lot of things. They lowball some of these prices in order to get deals approved. And, you know, California is is not going well. Um, there's some proposals in Texas. We'll see if anything comes out of that. The place where— I mean, I, of all places, I've spent some time in, in, in Texas. And, uh, you know, of all places, you have to—I I don't want to make a blanket statement, but it seems odd to me that there would be a high-speed train there. I, I don't right. know. It seems. I mean, when you're on the highway between the major cities, it's not even that dense in terms of traffic. You know, there's right. plenty. Of, the, the highways still have plenty of capacity. Yeah. As as far as I could tell, be, between let's say yeah. you know Austin and Dallas, or it's not the first place I would think of to uh, to build a high-speed rail line. Certainly, the Northeast Corridor could use high-speed rail. 
but again, it's the politics are probably make it impossible. You know, incremental improvements to Amtrak are probably the best we're realistically going to happen. And again, Amtrak's costs are out of control, and Amtrak is essentially a legacy rail operator. And, uh, you know, these are the guys who lose money selling, you know, $10 hamburgers <laughs> on their dining cars. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath, um, holding my breath for that. If you're going to think of uh, high-speed drill as a uh, money-making, maybe we shouldn't say money-making, we should say profitable. You know, if, if, if the goal is to have lines that are profitable, maybe not every single route, but overall that the network would be profitable or at least break even, you know, that the taxpayer isn't stuck with uh, uh, significant amounts of money every year. Um, it's uh, useful to uh, remember that a few years ago, there's a consultancy that researched existing high-speed rail lines across the world to try to figure out which were break-even and which were not. And you, uh, methodology here is everything because if you look at the French network, for example, you'd have to decide which costs it, it's fair right. to assign to this versus to the non-high-speed rail. So there, there's, there's argument around the conclusion. It's not straightforward. N nonetheless, this consultancy uh, came out with a conclusion that there were only two high-speed lines in the world that were better than break-even. And that was Paris to Lyon, which, uh, by the way, was the very first high-speed uh, line in, in France, and uh, Tokyo-Osaka. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, again, we can argue on whether they assigned the costs fairly, but uh, it doesn't, you know, if you can somewhat trust that conclusion, it's not encouraging uh, if we're embarking on big high-speed projects. Now, I know that there are other concerns. It's not, a, it's not about profits. It's about the environment and congestion and all, you know, all, all very valid issues to, to address, but uh, we should keep that in mind still, that yep. uh, there are likely to be a, a drain on the treasury or on the, on the budgets well, rather than contributors. Well, I mean, that's, um, you know, that's true of a lot of men. I think it's true of most transit systems as well. What I would say uh, with high speed, with a lot of rail systems, I think it's eminently possible for them to make an operating profit. You know, obviously they're highly capital intensive. They may not recover the cost of capital on the construction of the line, but you could certainly turn an operating profit. Even Amtrak's Northeast Corridor makes profit on the operating basis. And so I, I think if you can at least get your operating costs covered and maybe some of your some of your capital costs, it would be uh, it would be that. I mean, I think you know I essentially view uh, rail uh, as a um, you know as a public service, not as a uh, it's a, you know I don't expect my parks to generate a profit, for example. There's a lot of things I don't necessarily expect, but I think you raise it's it's probably mm. not going to be something that could be undertaken on a purely private sector. Yeah, that, that's basis. a fair point, but it, yeah. At the same time, you want to get an idea of how much of a uh, of, a, of a cash requirement it's going right. to be. I agree. Right. I agree. Very good. Uh, anything else we should talk about, Aaron? No, I think this is a, a great collection of topics, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. The, the world is an interesting place right now, 
and uh, we'll just uh, we'll see. Well, how we mentioned uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, leave without saying a couple of words, since you in a couple of times alluded to the politics that yeah. are, that are. Uh, so, you know, here we are, we have an election coming up, uh, we have the ongoing mess in the UK about Brexit. Um, can we make any generalizations or any kind of directional predictions or it's too tricky to do that? Yeah, I don't want to make any predictions because I think these things have proven impossible to predict. We don't know what's going to happen I would say, in general, um, there is a decline in trust in essentially the system, uh, in a decline in trust in uh, essentially elite uh, people and elite institutions. I would argue uh, that the decline in trust is warranted, uh, in part for like reasons you've written a lot about the rise of crony capitalism. Sure, I think some of this is a reaction, like where people are seeing the cronyism, they're seeing the scams, they're seeing the two tiers of things, and so I think that um, we certainly need to, in my view, if you if you want to restore stability to the system. You have to essentially restore kind of legitimacy to the institutions by, you know, again, as I said in Detroit, you got to eliminate the corruption. The corruption and the scams have got to go. You got to have just better functioning. It has to deliver results. It's like in a city when public services are improving, governance quality is going up, corruption convictions are going down, trust in the system goes up. And so I think that uh, rather than critiquing all of the craziness, which, you know, and maybe eminently worthy of critique, the, the real question I would be asking is how can we strengthen institutions and strengthen quality of leadership to essentially strengthen the legitimacy of the system in the eyes of the public? That's what I would right, I mean, for. corruption is uh, stealing from a group of people. Yeah. Cronyism is stealing from an even larger group, of people. <laughs> right? And, and it's and it's uh, you know corruption. Usually, there are law. You're, you're breaking the law. You know when right. it's when it's straight corruption, a person is breaking a law, and if they're caught, they're they're punished uh, often, although not not always anymore nowadays. Um, whereas with cronyism, very often there are no laws about uh, something that a person is doing that they shouldn't be doing. Because uh, it's about reducing competition through some kind of uh, agreement, whether it's be between two uh, big actors within an industry or whether it's a corporate and a government uh, a person or an agency from government who kind of uh, inadvertently sometimes, but other times not inadvertently, um, uh, adopt decisions that limit competition, and this is how kind of cronyism gets bigger and uh, damages the trust, as you said. So, this uh, I, I don't know of a way of reversing this um, slowly. Uh, sorry, I don't know of a way of reversing it quickly, but there must be ways of reversing yeah. it slowly. Yeah, I just think it's you know what can you do one institution? You know, what what can we do with the you know the the, the things that that are within our control? I say, how can I be a trustworthy person? 
and uh, you, you know, how can I seek to reward trustworthy people? And it's not easy. I wish I had the answer. And that's why I think when you look, for example, at some of the Eastern European countries that have had a lot of these legacies of corruption and cronyism, and they've really struggled. You know, it's kind of like joining the EU, trying to get ready to get join the EU would help them. But it's, it's very, once these things get going, they're very, very hard to uproot. And uh, and that's why I'm, you know, I worry and I don't have a good answer. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you roll some of this stuff back? Uh, but I think that that's really important. I mean, strengthening, strengthening the legitimacy of the system by actually making it more legitimate, worthy of legitimacy, I think is very important. That's the foundation of right. a lot of things. Right. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Aaron. Well, thank you for having me. This was Aaron Wren, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thank you for joining us.